So my name is Alan Seiler um, from Better Together Farm in South Central Oklahoma. We do um, about one-sixth of an acre in production. We highly use transplants, so I'm really excited about this class because this is the linchpin of small system agriculture. If you don't have transplanting down, it's going to make it a lot more difficult for you. So this is extremely important. Um, and um, this... and. Let me just put a caveat in here. We're not going to be really talking about timing, um, succession planting, or anything like that. We had other classes earlier this week. We're talking here strictly about method, okay? Pot size, what type of pot, soil blocks, what are the differences? Um, we're going to be talking about um, where we get our seeds from. We're going to be talking about um, if you're going to make your own mix, how would you do that? And if you're not making your own mix, where would be the best place to buy it? Um, and things like that. We're also going to be presenting a little bit about um, what's called a paper pot planter, which some of you might have heard about. It's really a little bit more for maybe larger scale productions, but it's, we just want to introduce you to some of the methods out there so that you can make intelligent decisions on how you're going to choose what you're going to use on your particular application. Larry, you want to introduce yourself? I'm Larry Lesher. Um... I farm in southern Indiana at Eastward Gardens. Eastward, like the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And so that's all there is to know about me. You're going to pray. Right? And now, if okay. you can, I would encourage you to kneel with me and we will start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come together and, and look into what it takes to start plants, to look at all the different methodologies and the ways that we can do that, Lord, we ask for your spirit to guide and direct us and lead us. Father, each person here, I pray your spirit is speaking to them and talking to them, even in this, which seems maybe unremoved from your work. We know that um, all these things are all bound up together, and if we can't see you in it, then there's no value in it, really. So help us to see you even in this process, and to know that um, you care about all these little details, and that we need to pay close attention to how we do these things. Ellen White says that not one fiber, one hair of the root should be misplaced, and so Lord, I pray that when we contemplate how we start our starts, and we, we um, endeavor into this, that you would be the teacher and you would guide and direct us according to your will and purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is how we're going to address this topic. First, we're going to start talking about environment. Now, when you're starting seeds, environment is very key to get maximum germination on the plants that you're planting. So, um, Larry... When we're talking about environment, what would be a few things that we really need to be thinking about before we even start as far as what do we have in place like, you know, greenhouses, moisture? What, what are some of these things that we need to really pay attention to when we think about starting seeds? What are the environmental factors that are going to make our seeds germinate the best? The first place that I would encourage you to start is you need to know where you're at in the world. Your geographical location is going to be different from one another, and so how you're going to go about this is probably going to really, that can have a key factor in, in how you even begin to think about doing it. For instance, I used to start starts in South Dakota. 
that is not in any sense, well, I shouldn't say in any sense, it, it is radically different than southern Indiana. We would hit on a regular basis every winter near negative 30. If we hit negative zero, we're, we're pretty cold in southern Indiana. And so the timing changes dramatically of when I start and what I start based on just that simple geographical issue. And so where you're at in the world is going to have a, a play on how you go about thinking about how you're going to do it. I would start there. Can I, can I say something mm -hmm. totally unassociated? Maybe. I don't know. I'll right. stop you if you say something I don't think right. you should be saying. What, what, <laughs> what I would like to see is we, when me and Alan talked about how we wanted to do this, we thought we would do it more in a dialogue fashion, right? Kind of True. talk, bounce things off of one another. But it's not just me and Alan talking to one another and you guys listening. If you have questions, we, I, it's really important to me, and I think to Alan as well, that we make sure that we're, we're answering your questions, why you're here. And so if we can bring you into this discussion, you know, we, we need to control it a little bit. There's quite a few people here. But if we can have a healthy discussion, I think that would be probably the most beneficial for you. You would definitely want to know your first frost date. That would be that. Pardon? So how much before the frost date do you start is the question. So when you ask a question, because we don't have a roving mic, we need to repeat it. So Audioverse and whoever is listening to this isn't, they don't know what we're talking about. So. Uh, what So, for instance, if you're talking about frost state, it's getting a little bit off of subject. Not that we don't want to address that subject, but we want to stay on topic as well, okay? Here's the situation. We're talking about method. Frost state, end dates, temperature, a lot of these things that are outside of actually growing transplants. Because, for instance, in a transplanting situation, we're more concerned about what we need to do to alter the environment so that those transplants actually sprout at their ideal rates and at their ideal perfection. And so we're talking about things of how we're going to alter the environment to make this accomplish. As far as your planting dates, that's a little bit of a different subject. We could go into that, but that's not exactly what we're trying to address here. We're talking about method as far as, okay, what temperature should my greenhouse or indoors be to make sure these plants sprout best? Um, how much should I water? Um, how much daylight should I actually have to be able to sprout these seeds? Things like that. So as far mm -hmm. as that, though, your frost date will be good, but there's certain things that aren't going to make any difference, like alliums and things that you can put out before the first frost date. And so those would be different than, say, your tomatoes. Because you consider planting your seed. Do you want to ask it as a question? Or, okay. Well, my question, actually a statement with a question, is that you consider planting the seed in your trays as part of your transplants? As far as part of the process of starting transplant? Okay, transplants is basically a method that is used separate from direct seeding into your ground that we use to put in a kind of an artificial environment to give them a jump on the season inside of a controlled area and then they will move out into the field, okay? Transplants can be done not only in the spring, but they can be done throughout the entire growing season and that's what we do. Can you define what you mean by a transplant? Because some of us coming thinking that you're going to teach us when to start our seeds, when those become 
trans, you know, when you start moving them up to larger pots and then when you put them in the ground, we see that whole process as transplant. True, and, there, and that's a part of the process of transplanting, but that doesn't necessarily correlate with as far as what your last frost date is or, or not. We're talking about an artificial environment here. Usually when transplants are started in something like this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, wrong Larry, but usually if you have them in a container like this, you're looking at about four to five weeks, as little as three, depending on what type of amendments you put into the mix to keep them going. Um, and then after that, you're going to have to either pot them on or get them out in the field. Every time you have to take this out of this pot and move it into a bigger pot, it's costing you money, okay? Because it's more material, more time, more labor. So the better you can time your system out, the better you're going to do as far as cost. It all comes down to getting those transplants out when they need to be out so you don't have to block them on. And one thing that you want to consider when he's talking about this, when he says four to five weeks, you could keep them in here longer. But, but they won't perform the way you expect them to perform when you finally get them out. And so timing is crucial. And how you choose to do it will differentiate time length that they can manage to stay in a pot. As far or as your a, mix. Or a, or a tray or, or your cell block or however you decide to do it. And so this is the thing we're trying to help you guys understand so that when you come to it and you make a decision about how you're choosing to do it, you understand why you're choosing what you're choosing to do. You understand what we're saying? Okay. So give us some parameters, Larry, as far as moisture, temperature, and daylight, or either if it's artificial light, some people I know grow inside, but give, it, give us some things as far as how, how wet do we want this mix when we're starting it, whatever mix it is, what's the ideal temperature, okay, if it's a variable, and then how much, day, uh, how much light should these guys have to be able to do well? So moisture-wise, so let me, let me say that the first thing that I do is uh, once the starts mix, I, I, I make my own starts mix. And we have a handout for his starts and, mix. And we'll get into that in a little bit down the road here. So once I have my starts mix, it's a pretty dry mix. Yeah. And so seeds obviously need moisture to germinate. So I will wet the mix until, and this is the way that I judge it. I'm not real scientific. I'm kind of more of a, uh, I, like, I have a feeling <laughs> and this is my feeling. When I wet it, I want to wet it enough that it sticks together, but it doesn't, if it, when I squeeze the mix, like if I grab a, a handful of it and squeeze it, I want it to have a little bit of moisture that rings out, but not runs out. And mm -hmm. so I don't know exactly what the percentage of moisture that would be, but I, that's the hand how test. I judge it. The good old hand it. test. I just know that, that that works well. It's going to germinate the seeds. So you pre-wet pre your mix before you put it into your trays? I, I do, yes. Okay, good yeah. point. Something to think about, and I've noticed this too when I'm doing pots, is that if you don't pre-mix it, especially if you're using peat or even coconut core yeah. uh, situation in here, it really is um, hydrophobic. It doesn't let the water through. And so if you don't pre-do it, your, the likelihood of infiltration through your mix, it's usually going to just bubble off the top and not go through and penetrate the mix. And I'll so you add want to pre-wet it. The other thing that I find is very important is if I, let's say I do it dry and I put it all in here, when I wet it, I'm going to find that it's going to be, I'm going to lose like a quarter of this cell. As far as it's going to shrink. It's going to shrink. And so that's a quarter less nutrients and root zone that I've just created for my start. And I want to maximize all of this space that I have here. I choose the size cell and the depth of cell because I know that's how much I want to give my roots 
for the allotted time. Do you follow what I'm saying? Okay. And so I want to utilize it all. I want it to be full. The other thing that, that is, is really important, I do not, I have a lot of interns, I've had a lot of interns in the past, and I'm very specific with them that when you, when you do a tray, there's a couple of techniques that I use. One is, is I want it totally level. If you have little sections where the, where the dirt is going over into the other ones, your roots will cross over. They'll climb over. And then when you're transplanting, you have to tear those roots because, you, you know, you've got to separate them. That is not what you don't want to do that. You especially to, if you leave them in too long. Especially if you leave them in too long. And, and I say you don't want to leave them in too long, but plants, I'll, I'll tell you, God is so nice. They're forgiving. They really are quite forgiving. I mean, you can't be ridiculous about it, but they are forgiving. And so the other thing that, that I find very important is because it's wet, you can really pack it. I mean, you can really fill this thing up. But then your roots have a hard time, and air has a hard time getting in there. And so there is a balance to how packed you want to make this. If you pack this too much, you won't have good plants. And so, Alan, can you hold this for me? Like hold the mic in front of you? Yeah, so I can kind of show them. So what we'll do is we'll take dirt, fill it up, put it on top, smooth it out till it's smooth. And then I'll actually pick the tray up and I kind of knock it two times. Now, I'm very specific, two times. And you don't, you don't just kind of do this, drop it, and just let it kind of fall down nice and stuff. You want to give it a firm, and when you do it, if you just did like this and let go, all the dirt bounces out. So saw it on the table two times, and then I filled it up again and smoothed off the top, and I leave that top part unpacked because that gives me a nice soft area, kind of like I've created tilled a seed bed. Only I haven't obviously tilled it. That's just how I do it. So tell us a little bit about temperature. Okay. Temperature can depend on your, what you're choosing to grow, okay. seed-wise. So, get us a very, so for, let's say like lettuce, lettuce starts or something like that, or kale starts. What are we looking at temperature-wise? Kale starts. Because <clears throat> these are colder crops, right? So it, if you have the means, a germination chamber would be the most functional way to get the highest. So what are we looking at temperature in the, in the, in the germination chambers for? Again, I'm, I'm pretty, I couldn't tell you specific temperatures. Alan probably can. He is a very methodical man. <laughs> I work a little more on, on uh, just this is what I feel. He feels it right me. here. It feels, this is, I just, you know when you've done something for a while and you just kind of know? That's how... I function. But Larry, this doesn't help these people. I mean, well, it doesn't. Does it doesn't, but I'm going to I'm going to elaborate on my gut feeling. Johnny's catalog. There you go. Okay. If you go to the free seed catalogs, they will all tell you this. But probably around 70 degrees is sufficient 72 85 to 86 Janet is correcting me. It's, it's, it's a variable. It really it is, is a variable, variable because um, lettuce can germinate very well at 50 degrees. Actually, yeah. spinach won't germinate at 85 degrees very well. You'll have about 10% germination. It's going to vary on the crops. Reference you to Johnny Seed's catalog. These catalogs are filled of information. We couldn't begin to go over all the specifics as yeah. far as temperatures are concerned. Warm weather crops, anywhere from 70 to 90 degrees probably. Cold weather crops, anything from there 
but anything that drops below 40 degrees, it's going to be really, really yeah. difficult to get that thing out of the ground. So the way that I do it, and this is, I think, for me, there's a certain measure of practicality in time. And so I know that if I'm comfortable, it's probably going to germinate fairly well. And <laughs> Where so, are you comfortable? What temperature are you comfortable at, Larry? And, you know, I mean, 75 degrees is wonderful, Okay, okay, right? good. And so my house is where I do most of the starts in the spring because I'm starting them fairly early because I know that eventually they're going to go outside, but right now they can't live. I couldn't germinate them outside. And so in our house, I have a bunch of, tra- you know, the um, silver kind of uh, baker's racks? They come with like five tra- levels, two feet deep, four feet wide. I can fit 20 trays on there. I have lights on two set of double lights on each rack. And so those lights I can raise and lower on a chain. And that heat of that lamp is going to heat up that area. So I know if my house is 70 degrees, it's probably about 75 to 80 degrees underneath that light. I use daylight lights. I don't use any broad spectrum, no special lights, just regular lights is all I use. And that would be the same for me. I use 3,000 Kelvin and 65 6,500 Kelvin, the mixture between the two, gets the balance of light you need. At least that's what I read, and that's what I use, and it seems to work, so I'll go with that. (laughs) There you go. So that's the method that I use when I'm doing it Should I say that again? Just go by the Kelvin. Just go by the Kelvin. It's on every package. 3,000 Kelvin and 6,500 Kelvin lights. You put two of those in the bulbs, and so you get the mixture and the cross between the lights, and you're good. 3,000 Kelvin. Yeah, you can use a regular, the cheapest shop light uh, fixtures that you can buy in Lowe's and then just yeah. put those two lights in there, and that works, works really well. Yeah. 3,000 Kelvin and 6,500. I think the 6,500 is a daylight light. Maybe it is. I just go by the Kelvin. Yeah. So. Um, you, you can um, just price it out. Price out the difference. I don't know as far as how Kelvin relates to LEDs, and that that's not, I, I just don't know. I just use the, you know, they're longer lights. Um, well, no, they don't put any heat, but you get light. Well, you're going to have to add heat most likely anyways. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I'll go back to the germination chamber as well. One of the conditions is humidity. Humidity is very useful in germination. So, is this another gut feeling, or do you have a percentage? I don't have a percentage. That's <laughs> no, okay. No, and and I'll, tell you how I, I'll tell you how I do it. And, you know, I do okay, so do what you want. But what, what I do is I, I've, if you've ever been to a tractor supply and you've seen those little cheap greenhouses they have, they're like $25, they zip up. I bought one of those, and people are like, that's a real professional greenhouse you got there. Yeah. And, and so I have this, my wife, praise the Lord for my wife. She lets me do things that I don't think most people would let their husbands do because she believes in what we're doing. So in my living room, we have these three, you know, and I fit like, what is it, 20 flats on each one of these, and there's three of them, and they're loaded with all these starts, and they're still there, so that this has been since winter. And I have this little, in our kitchen, or in our dining room, I have this little greenhouse thing. And in the bottom, I put a um, crock, pot. crock pot. I have a $15 crock pot, and I fill it with water, and I turn it on medium. 
and it humidifies that little thing. And I put my starts in there, six trays at a time, and they germinate really quickly. You pull them out and you put them on the rack. And you can cook beans at the same time? And you can have (laughs) stew later. Um, But it works really well. And I don't know the exact humidity. And you do have to be careful when you do it because things will mold if you do that. So I put them in that little greenhouse I was talking about. Which has a plastic cover over it. It has a plastic cover. It's totally encapsulated. Oh, it's like this tall. And it's like this. It's just enough to put two trays. I put... I put two of these trays in there, one on this, you know, on this shelf, this shelf, this shelf, this shelf, and in the very bottom, I have a little $15. So, Larry, this lady was asking it's about tiny. the zip-up. It's it, just tiny. Uh, I could do like six at a time in there for winter, like in the winter when I'm just starting alliums and stuff like that, tomatoes. When you say alliums, clarify when you say alliums. Onions and leeks, Okay. basically. Just kind of, it's just kind of, yeah, humidifying just up. Just bubbles up like a just regular pressure gun. keeping it kind of wet and moist and... So the, then I pull hey, it all out. Yeah. So the zipper is just the, the plastic cover that has a zipper so you can get into the thing yeah. and then you zip it down so that it holds the, the humidity yeah. in. Okay. I, I don't do that. I, my system's a little bit different than Larry's, but I think his system's good, so that's, that's good with me. Yeah, we kind of need to move on to the next thing here. So What do you do? What do I do? Do you well, use heat mats? I, I, use, I use heat mats, and what I'll do... And this is only for the high-value crops, like tomatoes. Everything else I found really doesn't need a humidifier in it. But especially tomatoes, what I will do is that I'll take... So I use this little soil block maker, and we make... There's a mix. I don't have it on here, but Elliot Coleman, I just use the book... I use the mix in his books for small blocks, okay? It's called The New Organic Grower, for those that are taking notes. It's a great book and has some good mix uh, mixes in it that are pretty tested and, 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 and pretty good. I think Larry's mix probably is better, um, but it's, it's a little bit simpler of a mix. And Anyways, it works for me. That is actually the mix that I use. Well, Except he doesn't use chickpea flour. Because he uses blood meal. <laughs> oh, that's right. So you're trying so to... Okay. I have taken his percentages and well, broken we'll get into them that, out. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, and then I, I put them in these little blocks, and then I take saran wrap from the kitchen, and I just put it over there, on top of a heating mat, and it holds the moisture and humidity in, and I put it, you don't want to have it suspended because sometimes the, heat, the humidity will come up, hit that, condense on the plastic, and then it will go to only one side of the block. You want it to be wrapped around it really close so that when it comes up, it keeps the humidity right on the block, and I found that uh, very successful. You don't want to do that with all things. Um, with things like um, peppers, I found that when you put the, the, the thing around it, it will rot the seeds. Tomatoes are better. Um, but with peppers, you just need to make sure that they don't dry out, but you don't want to cover them, I found. And my experience was is these are such small little blocks, you really got to pay attention because they will dry out really quickly. And the thing is is that heating mats are very expensive if you use heating mats. They can run like for a 2 by 8 uh, sorry, 2 by 4 <laughs> sounds like a piece of wood, but a, a 2, two foot, foot by 4-foot four four thing, it can be like $80 for these mats or more, depending on where you get it. Um, What's the place? Morgan Morgan County Seed in Missouri sells those mats probably at the best price that you'll find them. I think they're like $50 for a two foot by four foot mat. Um, And Johnny's is like a hundred. So you need to just shop around for them. Okay. Um, So, but that's what I use, but only on valuable crops with everything else. It's pretty much let the weather take care of it. We just put a double layered greenhouse 
and we put it all outside in the spring, and the double layer seemed to work well for us this year. You know, when you have a heated house, those things are going to sprout a lot faster and get up there. But for me right now, I can't afford to put a heater in it. So I do the best I can just with a double-layered um, greenhouse, but no added heat, just passive heat. Family, if this is just for your home, your family use, what would you do different? I'm not commercial. I'm just yeah, I would just, I would, uh, just make a, what Larry does with a, a seed starting rack and put some lights in the top of it and, and go that way. The thing That's that what I, I would do. And, and what I would add to that is, is it's the same process. You just do less volume of it, so you need less space. You can do it smaller scale. Let me give you, let me, hold on. How many hours a day do you leave the lights on? I turn them on when I wake up and I turn them off when I go to sleep <laughs> because it's in my room and I don't want to sleep with those lights on. I have a timer. <laughs> I use a timer. See, he's just sophisticated. Like you would. I, I am this a little bit. So, um, I, use a, I use a timer just like you would on a light, like if you left and you wanted your lights to come on and off so people don't rob you. I go to Home Depot and get one of those little timers, and I put them on the timers based on when I plan to plant them outside. So whatever the daylight length is going to be, when they move out of this, my little protected area, you know, in the house or in a, in a greenhouse or whatever. I presume that they're whatever, not in your room then. They're in the living room. Okay, so that makes a big difference. <laughs> and so whatever, if my day length is going to be 6 a.m. to 9, let's say, when I move them out, I will schedule it to be on that time frame, and that's what they will live on until they go outside and the time doesn't change. It's important because some things are light sensitive, and if the light changes drastically with onions specifically, it can, you can have some really poor outcomes. I mean, some people don't think so, but I, they're light sensitive, and so that's why I do that. So... Now, let's talk about once these things have sprouted, right? Okay, they're coming up. Now we're we, going, Are we going to talk about all these no, different traits? No, just this last thing, and then we'll go into methods, okay? okay. So, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, but, yes. Who's got a question? I do it with the, and, yeah, and that's, that's you a know, really good. watering in the living room can be a challenge, and what you have under your trays to keep the floor safe, and I, you're talking about sprouting already and going forward, so just well, watering sprouting is really connected with watering. So how often do we water these things, and how we do it? I'll just put a thing in here. What I do is I get one of those five-gallon backpack sprayers from Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever. It could be small. It doesn't have to be a backpack sprayer. I just fill it up with water. And then I'll take that and I'll put it on the fine mist and I'll just mist the tops of those. I use soil blocks currently, but I'm thinking about changing. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but that's what I use. Um, that's what I use to water inside. Outside, I get it's called um, a drom. D r a m m. I believe so. Dram. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Foggit nozzle. I think it's a gallon a minute. You can is get the one. half gallon, one gallon, two gallon, and four gallon. If you gallon. get the, two, the ones that are too high gallon, they put out the water too fast, and it's going to blow your blocks away or your trays away. So I, do, I think I do the gallon and a half maybe. Or gallon is what gallon. I mean. Gallon or two. Yeah. Both of them seem to But it's a little well. brass thing. It has three little nozzles on it, and that's what I use outside. And once the plants get a little bit bigger, I'll even use um, a, a, a larger drum, which has a bigger um, a head on it and puts out more volume. 
um, because it will take a long time to water those seedlings if once they're up and pulling water, it's going to take a lot longer to water them with the fogget nozzle. So I'll step it up a little bit and have a little harder, harder uh, more quick watering method. Okay. Use the rose head? I don't know what it's called. Okay. It's pretty, though. <laughs> Roses are pretty. So I use a backpack sprayer as well, just like he does. The difference that I didn't hear him mention is I also buy a 1020 flat, and you can get them with holes and without holes. I get them without holes, and that will catch the water. Um, 1020 flat. It means that it's... It's 10 inches by 20 inches, I think, is why they call it a 1020 Yeah, flat. it's the dimensions of the base of the flat. So this is a flat. Yeah, that's a flat. So this here is a 1020 flat, and you can see this one has no... They'll have slits in them if they have holes. This one does not, and I take this... This is what I start my tomatoes in. I don't recommend it, though. It takes up too much space. You could start your tomatoes in a much smaller and have many more and pot them up, and you know you have 100% germination. And so I'm changing some of my methodology, but that's just part of farming. You just learn things and change things. So how do you water it once they get up and sprouted and bigger? You don't have to use, you know... I still use the backpack sprayer the whole time until I move them out into the greenhouse. So once um, in the greenhouse... Drum. Drum, okay. Yeah, so the same thing nozzle. you're using. Yeah, it's yeah. a good nozzle. So I, I know that you haven't used automated systems to water. I have an automated system. You, I haven't put it up yet. You, okay, but okay. I, I have used it, a one, an overhead system made by, uh, made by Netafim with Mr. Nozzles that you put every three feet. One of the things to consider when you're doing this is that if you have more of a controlled hoop house environment, you're going to have more consistent wind patterns over those plants. And it, believe it or not, especially with soil blocks, I'm not sure about with trays. It probably is a bit different. Probably not so touchy, okay? Because, because you don't, when the wind passes along this, it's hitting plastic. It's not actually hitting your dirt inside. So it might be a little different. But I found with the overhead mister systems, especially with a house that has vents on all sides, that the wind will come and it will spin inside that house and parts of the house will get dry and parts of the house will get wetter because it's pushing that mist over the top of those plants when you're watering. And so you need to consider how the wind patterns are moving through your house. If you have vents on one side and it's just blowing the air straight across, I don't think it would be as bad. But in our situation, I, with the automated system, I was finding that I was having dry blocks over here and super soggy blocks over here. So I've reverted, at least currently, to the Foggett system because I can manage. I can water more here and I can water less over here because I'm visually going through each tray and watching how it's either too dry or too wet. And that's important. Very too dry important. and too wet makes a big difference. He was talking about hydrophobic. Does everybody know what hydrophobic means? Resisting. Resist water. The, the, the peat moss becomes much, if you let it dry out, it, is, it can take you a long time. And you will think that soil block is wet, but inside, the core of it is dry as a bone. And so it's really difficult with a draining system that has holes in the bottom, it's really difficult to overwater it if you're hand watering. Which I is mean, a plus really, to the, to the really, self-flat system. They can take a lot of water. Peat moss will hold a lot of water. I used to use peat moss mixes, and I started using a coconut coir mix, and coconut coir is a lot less hydrophobic. It can dry out. As soon as you spray it, it's wet almost instantly. That was one of the reasons I switched. The other thing about it is, is it holds water a lot longer. 
Good and thing. And you can overwater easily if you're used to watering a peat moss mix and you switch to a coconut coir mix and you keep watering at the same rates, you have to, and this is the key to all, really the, the real fundamental key to all of this is you have to be observant. True. You don't do something because it's what you always do. You do something because it needs to be done. And you have to be able to look at your plants or your starts or your starts mix and say, this is how I always do it, but that's not going to work right now. Because right now in this condition, I need to do something else. And so I would have a real struggle with interns when they first came in. We water every day. Except sometimes the sun doesn't come out. And in South, in South Dakota where I had interns, the sun's always out. But some days the sun wouldn't come out. I mean, we had 360 days of sun there, right? And so when it would be cloudy, they would still want to water it just the same. And I'm like, you can't do that. Look how wet they are. You, you have to look and observe what you're doing because you do what the plant needs, not what your habitual habit pattern is. Because you're trying to tip the balance of nature in favor of these plants so that you have the best starts. But to just kind of throw out some ideas there, in the wintertime or in the early spring, so let's say from about February to about March, I will water probably once every three days because it's cold. There's just not a lot of evaporation going on in my house. Once we get beyond that, it's probably going to be once every two days. And once you hit the probably the, no, probably once a day. And once you hit like into June, middle of June time onward to probably mid-September and a little later, it's probably once, twice a day. Sorry, twice a day, not once, twice a day. Yeah, so you're going to do it in the morning and you're probably going to do it around 4 o'clock. And you just do that. Every, it's just too downright hot. Um, and the, they're just they're just gonna they need water. they're gonna need water, and it might be it's gonna probably gonna be different with when you're using this because you don't have so much surface area in a block system. You have more surface area for evaporation to take place, especially on the edges. Here, it's a little bit I would imagine more resistant to evaporation. One of the things that I, I observe, um, my wife is frustrated with me because I'm picky. What happens yep. is. Is, is that the corners and the edges of your flats will always, it, it, I don't know why it is, but it's always the case that they don't pack them enough and they're always lower. They don't hold as much. So you don't have as much dirt in there to begin with. The sun, if this is on the edge, like if this was our table, let's say we're in the greenhouse, you know, and all of our flats are lined up on this table, and let's say the sun is going like this across the sky all day, right? This side right here, is going to dry out way faster than this side here because the sun's just cooking it. And so when you come in and you're watering, you may need to water this way more. Mm -hmm. Or may, you might need to come in in the middle of the day and water it. Yep. Well, you wouldn't touch the rest of them. And so you, you have to be observant and pay attention to what is going on in the world around you and reason from cause to effect and say, what am I going to do based on this circumstance? And, and I can't reiterate that enough. The, the most beautiful thing that I have learned in agriculture is that you have to pay attention and you have to do what needs to be done based on what's happening. And you have to be a thinking person. You have to be critically thinking all the time. You have to be an observant person and you have to reason from cause to effect. And it will affect you and everywhere else in your life because you'll start thinking like that. You'll start reasoning like that. And it's a, it's a good quality. So, let's move on, Larry, uh, to systems. Okay. As far as plug trays, 
220 trays or whatever it's called, whatever the numbers of trays and stuff like that. Then we'll talk about a little bit about soil blocks, the, the pros and cons to that. And then we're going to touch a little bit, hopefully, here on um, Ben. Will we have that video ready to go when we need it here? Okay, good. We're going to be moving on to that part. Uh, it's called the paper pot planter, and we'll talk about some pros and cons in that area as well. I have a question. Being very um, stingy or tight or conservative, do you ever use the trays again? <laughs> I hope Absolutely. so, Absolutely. <laughs> How long okay. have you had this tray, Larry, would you say, since you bought it? Two yeah. years. This one's two years. Now, I will point out, you can't get this tray. You can't buy this tray. It's his tray. Well, <laughs> that is true. It is my tray. I brought it from Indiana, so you could look at it. This is a... It's made specifically for a specific um, nursery, and they order them very rarely, and they don't sell them. And so in order to get them, you kind of have to be in the right place are. at the right yeah. time and know the right person. And it's a hard tray. It's hard plastic, right? And so this will last me probably, it could last me 20 years. It could last the rest of my life. I mean, it's just they don't really break down. So seeing that that's not available, what's the next best option? And so most of the trays you're going to get is like this. It's kind of a little bit flimsy. You can hear it crinkling and stuff. And so if you take care of them, I can get about three seasons roughly out of those, depending on how well they get handled and if, you know, things don't happen to them. Um, I think you can get a case of 100 for about 80 bucks. And so, and then also on our, our handout sheet here, we have the names of companies that we recommend that carry stuff like this. Absolutely. So make sure. And you sure. don't have to buy 100. You could buy, I think they, I don't know what they run individually. They're probably like $1.25 each or something like that. And so. So what are the advantages of having a tray system, a plug tray system, Larry? Are you going to take a question? Or are you going to, Okay. Do you, do you disinfect and disinfect them? It's a good idea. I don't. <laughs> um, and the way you would disinfect it is fill up a tub with bleach water, throw it in the bleach water, pull it out, just disinfect it, let it dry. You know, that bleach is going to dissipate and be gone and it won't matter. That's about, that's what people do. I've done it and I do it periodically if I feel like I need to but I haven't really had any issues where I feel like it has, is overly necessary. And if I don't have to use bleach, I don't. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you can see, like, this has obviously been used several times, and I have a high calcium water, so you can see all the white on there is calcium buildup just from getting wet every day. So what are the benefits to a plug tray system? Well, maybe we should talk a little bit about, so any, everyone can see, you know, you're going to put soil in this, you're going to water it, it's pretty self-explanatory. But really when we start looking at other methods is when we know how to cross-compare and say, okay, what's going to be right for me? And so let's move on to that. I think that would be the next best step. Who, who here has hold, heard about soil block makers? Okay, so not all of you, but some of you. The soil block maker technique, and this is what we use on our farm, and we'll talk about, we can talk about the pros and cons once we have something to compare to. It's like, you know, if, if I know that there's only apples in the world, then I'll never know what a peach looks like or tastes like. So we need to cross-compare here. So how the system works is basically you're going to take a mix like Larry's pretty much, okay? You're going to wet it to about the consistency of peanut butter, 
okay, and mix this thing up. And then you're going to put it in like those cement trays. Have you seen those at Lowe's? They're big tubs, black tubs that you put on the ground, okay? And you're going to pour that into there, and you're going to mix it up either by hand or put it in a um, cement mixer. mixer. We actually have a mortar mixer that I pulled out of the weeds at someone's place and brought it home and spent too much money repairing it. Um, But anyways, and so you're going to mix it up, and once you get it to the right consistency, you're going to take this thing, you're going to push this thing down into it several times, twisting and stuff like that. Then you're going to scrape it off on the edge, and then you're going to inject it the blocks into the tray here, okay? And as you can imagine, think about this. I'm not just mixing it. I'm wetting it and mixing it. And then I'm not just wetting it and mixing it. I'm actually taking this machine and I'm forcing it into the mix, compressing the soil into the form of blocks, and then I'm injecting it, and I can only do about a third of a tray at a time. This is where soil blocks really stink, okay? (laughs) To tell you the truth. For one thing, they're very compact, which I haven't personally noticed a big problem in seed production in. I know Larry said that he doesn't like these two pack, and it might be because he has edges on these. So it's gonna, he's not going to get the, the air movement around or the oxygen exchange. When you have a block that doesn't have any sides, you have air pruning. One, two, three, four, five, six. You have six sides that are going to have air exchange in them. So um, it's, it's going to make a bit of a difference. But... It's the physical aspect of this. When you're having to do 100 trays, it's really daunting. And you're doing this thing. I mean, I've gotten blisters on my hands doing this. I know a lot of people that do this. Dye singers have done this for years. And I'll let them share their own reasons. But I'm highly questioning, <laughs> I'm highly questioning the long-term wear on my body using this machine. Okay, It's something you have to consider. You only have one body and one life. If you're wanting to do this for 40 years, you have to think about how is this wearing on my body? Is this really ergonomic? Is it efficient? And another thing is is that my mom's going to throw her back out doing this. You want to think also about situations on which it's not just the farmer that has the big muscles. I don't have big muscles, but has more muscle mass that can actually, is the only one that can do this. You want to have something that's more universal, that any worker can accomplish, not just you. And so that's one of the downsides. The upsides to this is that you don't have to buy any of these flimsy trays that you replace every three years. So um, this is a pretty lifetime investment situation, and it's going to work day in and day out. But it's going to wear on your body, and it's, uh, not everyone's going to be able to do it. Um, the other downside to this is that, let's say I make a mix, okay? Once that mix is wet, I have pretty much 12 hours to get those blocks done and seeds planted in them because beyond that time, because you're putting so much water into this mix, it's going to start decomposing and methane's going to be given off, which is an inhibitor of seed germination. So if you don't hit that window of time, basically your mix is shot and you have to start over again. Which is a real downside. Not necessarily, because he can. Okay, the the question was is that Larry wets his mix anyways, and so why you know what's the difference? The difference. This is where the difference lies. The difference lies is that Larry can pre-make his mix, and he might not do this. He doesn't need to pre-wet it to use it. Wetting it is simple. Okay, but he can make this in mass and have it in storage. Anyone can wet a mix lightly. 
The thing is, is that I'm using my mix till it, I, when I squeeze it, it's going to just drip on the floor. I want it to be wet enough, but with his mix, it's not going to be super wet, so it's even the weight that you're having to move around physically is going to be different because yeah. of the concentration of water you're putting in the mix. I can mix it ahead of time, but then it's, it's not so much mixing it ahead of time, it's the physical aspect of actually mixing it. If you have a mixer, but it's the, it's the amount of time. And I know people that don't wet their mix, mm -hmm. that put it in and do this as well. But here's the biggest difference. Watch this. Let's say I have this, okay? I put it, let's say I have a table here, but I, I put it on the ground. I take my mix, and I just pour it in the top, pat it down, and I'm done. Okay? With this, and you know this, Alyssa, because you're on our farm, it takes about a minute to do a tray, maybe a little bit more. Um, if you don't have enough, you know, you have to mix it down, pack it up, and stuff like that. I, I would say that it, it's the manual labor part of that is really the only... The other things you can mitigate, you can figure out ways around it, like, like she's saying, but it's a more complicated process. It's a more complicated process. It, it, his upsides, he has air pruning. When he transplants, he has less transplant shock. True. It's a, it's a really good method for the plant. While it may not be the best method for Alan's body, it's a good method for Alan's plant. And so so you, I might you not survive, the, but the plants will. If you have good, strong, nourished soil and plants growing them, you'll be rejuvenated. <laughs> and so, but, and I use soil blocks as well. I don't just do this. And one of the reasons why I got this, I spent $5 a tray. You probably would pay 10 normally, but... The reason why I did is if you get close enough, every one of these blocks has a little slit on two sides of it. And you can see how big that hole is in the bottom. So talk a little bit about air pruning so that people know. Okay, so air pruning means effectively the root as it grows out, once it hits air, will stop. And it doesn't necessarily work all the way on soil blocks. They will grow into each other after a certain amount of time. Yeah. The outside blocks definitely have the air pruning, but the inside blocks will grow into each other if you leave them in too long. It really all comes down to timing on any system you use. Yeah, but, but what that does effectively, I get an air pruning, so they can't root wrap. Root wrap means the roots will just go around in a circle, and they'll just keep Which and when you plant you left that, it in too long. When, and, but when you plant it, the roots have a, a growth pattern. They're not going out. They're not going down. They're going around in a circle, and so you, you lose real, your plants are not going to be as good. They're going to have a harder time. And I like to say, I mean, I probably will never give up the soil block situation completely because I will use it maybe for larger crops and stuff like that. So it's not necessarily a situation of, okay, that's the worst thing ever. I'm never going to use it. It's saying what will work for what applications. And so, for instance, I will use this for squash. I'll use it for bigger crops that I don't plant more of. But things like spinach, beets, I'll actually do beets in blocks and stuff like that. I'm having to do like 24 trays just for one planting. With tomatoes, I might have to do three trays. You see the difference in, in, in the amount of effort and the amount of blocking you have to do. Yeah. So we're going to be switching up to, to another system. I haven't quite decided, but that's when we start looking at the, the paper pot planter, which we're not going to play just yet, but um, it, because I want Larry to say anything else that he wants to say before we move right. on to that thing. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's really good. So Alan's got basically, is that a one and a half inch? Yeah, this is an inch and a half blocker. They make a two inch blocker and a three inch blocker. Right. And they might make something else, but I don't know of it yet. Now, on his, 
you can get and the little guys a, here. You see how this has a little dibbler in it? If you look in there, you can see actually here. Let me can I pop that out? Yep. These little guys here. That makes a little dibble in your block so you can put your seed in. One of the things I found with these is some of these for small seeds, lettuce seeds likes light. It, it, light, it needs light penetration in order to germinate. If I had a hole that big and I filled it up, you get really erratic germination. And that was a problem for me. I actually would use these and I wouldn't cover them. Mm -hmm. And I would just water it lightly and it would sort of fill in and I would get better germination. But they also make a square one that's the size of this plug. And so when you would make that block, it would have a hole in it this big and you would take these once you start it, and you would up pot them. And that's what I do. So basically, you pot it on. They have a four-inch potter. You might have seen that one. It's just a one thing. I don't use that. And the bigger reason is, is that I find that where the plant meets the ground, it will sometimes snap over because it's too weak. I actually, once we get to the two-inch size block, this is not a two-incher, I'll actually plant it at the bottom of a four-inch pot. And then the, 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 the little furry part of the tomato plant actually will grow out and I'll have a better root system that way. So I only use these up to the two inch size and then after that we pot them on if we need to. I would like to mention though as far as Larry mentioned covering seedlings. Um, some people will use soil and they'll sprinkle it over the top. Some people will use whatever. I just make a hole. I, use a, I have a really technical way I do this. I have a um, marker. Wow. Marker. And I make a little hole in the middle. And when I put the seed in, I just push the dirt over to the side. It's very technical. If you need me to show you that, come up afterwards and I'll... Mine's a little, well, less technical. I just... What I do is I use what's called vermiculite, okay? Oh. You know? <laughs> Anyways, but vermiculite is, is really great. It's actually a, like an expanded mica stone. So it has high magnesium and it's actually... People will use it because it actually inhibits dampening off. If you've ever had that situation in seed starting, where it actually will, this little fungus will come and it'll basically girdle the bottom of the seedling and it'll fall over. And so it, it allows more air exchange, but it also holds moisture. And I find that that is really, works really well for me. Um, so anyways, it's like perlite, except it's made out of a different stone. Sorry? You can get it at a local nursery store, by the way. Every nursery pretty much will carry it, and I just get the fine textured uh, vermiculite. Um, when using the soil blocker, mm -hmm. what do you recommend? What, what container have you found best to hold them? Um, these are great here. These will work. I would put holes in the bottom of them if I was you, but they have these that they're more of a mesh. I should have brought one. Actually, there is one. Um, Bree, could you... Could you check over there on the ad agri table and see if there's a, a tray over there? That's actually the one that I it's use. A, it's it's called a 1020 tray, but they have a... But they have different mesh bottoms. Grab the Johnny's catalog while you're over in there. Different, in different density of plastic. Mine's a much hardier plastic, okay? Yeah. No, you need to make sure, she was saying that there, she has a lot of big soil blocks in there, and sometimes because of these trays are weak, they'll just bloop, you know, go over. So you want to make sure that you have a really sturdy, thicker, um, like polycarbonate tray. Or I'm not sure, it's, it's poly, poly, it's just poly a plastic. yeah. A uh, question over here. Elliot Coleman actually just uses, um, have you seen that greenhouse paneling? It's about that thick, and it has like, it's laminated on two sides with like air gaps in the middle. 
I don't know if anyone, it's, it's a polycarbonate sheeting that they use on, on greenhouses. It doesn't need to be that, but you could just, quite honestly, you could just take plywood and just cut the dimensions of what the blocks are, three in a row, and then just block onto that flat piece. He just uses that. He doesn't even have any edges or anything on his. And uh, you'd be able to stack them tighter in your, if, in your greenhouse if you, you need more space. I used to use these, um, I forget what they call them. It's a 1020 tray, but it's got a mesh webbing. And I would soil block into that. And then I could use these and set them inside of it. And that made it more rigid. But then if I wanted, because I wanted all five, he said there's six sides of air pruning. As soon as you put it on a flat surface, the air pruning ends at the bottom and your roots will run along the bottom. Mm -hmm, true. And so I like the idea. I would use those little trays. If I can find them in the Johnny's catalog, I'd, I'm pretty sure that they have a picture. Oh, there it is. Yeah, here. It's a, yeah, they just call it a mesh tray. But if you look in the Johnny's catalog on page 223. Yeah, that's, right here, that's what I use. This one on top. Yeah. The, the top one. That so that, that allows all your sides to air prune. Um, and can we... It's Sorry. a little more rigid. It's a heavier plastic because it's got so many mesh holes in it. And if you don't want it to, if you want to, if you're in the house, you can set it in this. And then when you move out to the greenhouse, you just pull it out of that and set it on your table or whatever you have that you're using your starts tables for. Okay. It worked really well. So there is a new type. Well, it's not necessarily new, I don't think, but it was used in Japan for actually... We haven't talked about sizes. Sizes. Sizes of blocks. Why, why would you use this one? Well, we talked about or some of these one. sizes. Yeah, well. But, yeah. So this is called a, a 72 cell flat, and, and they get their numbers purely based on how many squares there are. This is a 50. So what, what would you... Okay, sorry, bad. My bad. And, and I use 128. I was talking to Whitmar on the way over here. I think he uses like a 428. Or very small blocks. Very, very tiny ones. And he starts his stuff in those, and then he pots them on, because that way he knows he gets 100% germination. So you start, you know, you have 428 tomato starts, and maybe you get 380 of them to germinate. So you're not wasting a bunch of dirt that didn't ever, you know, serve a purpose, because it's expensive. Starts mix isn't cheap, and so you don't want to waste it. So then he can take that little one as soon as it germinates, and it gets, like, about this big, you pot it onto something like, you know, a bigger, you know, more nutrients for the plant, basically. Um, and as far as sizes, I do all my brassicas and things. What's a brassica? Okay, uh, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts. What did I miss? The whole family. Romanesco. All the things that are pretty big like that, I'll use a 72 cell flat. Things like lettuce, I'll use a 128 cell flat. Um, herbs, a lot of herbs, I'll use a, a 128 cell flat. Um, and then bigger things like tomatoes, squash, um, you know, zucchini, winter squash, melons, cucumbers even. I'll use a 50 cell flat or I will use the one and a half inch soil block. Just depends on my mood. <laughs> Are you planting directly out of those into the field? If when when I do, I don't. I I will do everything in my power not to have to pot something up, because it just takes a lot of time and it, it can become a little bit frustrating for me. 
Um, I'm the only person on a farm doing three acres, and so I try to find as little double handling as possible. And so, um, yeah, I, I get about four to five weeks would probably be right. Six weeks, these need to be out and in the ground. Um, lettuce. Seven weeks, you throw them away. Depends on how desperate I am. Okay. Um, hopefully they're in the ground if it's not raining profusely. And, you know, it, the, the reality is, is the world is, is uh, real out there. And <laughs> you don't always get to do what you want to do. It dictates a lot of what you get to do. A, quiz, a question about beets. When you plant in the beets, do you plant one beet in each of those? Or? I'll plant uh, three seeds to a block. Prefer, uh, we've been going down to two seeds. I think we'll have better. So Because beet seeds are um, multi-faced, they're like a diamond, so you'll have actually three individual or four individual plants in one seed. And so two will be pretty much sufficient, and it'll make up for the ones that might not germinate. Um, so that's what I do as far as beets are concerned in a block. I want to just do a little rant here as far as why are we doing soil blocks anyways, or why do we do pot entrees anyways? Think about it this way. Let's say that I have a 26-week season, okay, that I'm growing in and I'm marketing and selling, okay? This is a very, very intensive time. I want to maximize the square footage that I'm growing in. These are going to be in this for probably three to five weeks, okay, depending on what we're doing, okay? That's three to five weeks that they're not out in the field. They're not in the field taking up space. You say, okay, we'll get three plantings per square foot per year. Now you're looking at about three months, which is about 12 weeks that you're saving off of that 26-week period that your plant doesn't actually have to be in the ground taking up space in the field. That means that you might even be able to put on an extra crop. This is where soil blocking starts making sense because you're maximizing the land that you have, especially on a small farm system, because you're taking basically half of your growing season and you're making it happen in blocks or trays. And you know that every time you transplant exactly. something in the ground, there's a plant. A seed? Maybe, maybe Hopefully, not. Yeah. You know? And so it's a, it's a, it's a really smart way to... To make sure that everything, and that's the thing about potting on. Like in my house, I have 20 flats that I can do in one of those. So I have 60, or two, four, six, 60 flats that I can do. And that means I can't transplant anything earlier. Like I have 60 options, right? So if I can do them in smaller trays, that means I can get a lot more plants under those lights. And if I can pot them on, but you got to have somewhere to pot them on too. <laughs> but if I know that every one of, say I do three flats of that, and then I transplant them on to a 50-cell flat, let's say, right? I know that every, 50, every one of them have 50 plants in it. If I, do it. if I seed just into this, and let's say I get 90% germination, you know, that means I'm missing a few plants. You don't make any and money off of the space. plants that don't sprout. That's right. <laughs> and so that's one of the benefits of plotting up from a small cell at once. So I'd like to just highlight this thing. We're going to play it just in a second. But this is a, this is a technique. We need to kind of keep moving on. But if you have a question, just hold that thought. Um, this is a technique that was developed by uh, some Japanese growers that were doing sugar beets because they were wanting to maximize their season and get more production. One of the things with transplanting is, is that you spend a lot of time down on the ground. 
you're bending and you're putting that transplant in. Another reason to have, you know, appropriately spaced beds so that you're not killing your back or more mechanization or something like that. But this is a system that was developed. There are upsides to it. There are downsides to it. We'll talk about it after we watch the video here. It's just, it's fairly short. So if we could go ahead and play that, that would be great. There's no sound with it, but just, just watch the technique that's being used here, okay? So think about all the time you don't have to be on the ground planting each one of these individual plants. This is Jean-Martin Fortier. Um, he's a grower in Quebec, and um, this, is, this is a system that he's using, especially for smaller transplanting systems. There are benefits, there are downsides to it, but... Um, We'll talk about those after we watch it. So he just takes it out there. He turns this thing around. He puts a stake in the tape on the end, and then he pulls it the opposite direction. And this is available in the States right now from a company called Farm Works, I believe. You can just put in Paper Pot Planter, um, and they should come up with their website. They're the only uh, dealers of this piece of equipment in the States that I know of. One of the things you need to think about, and I was reading some reviews on this. I haven't used it yet personally, but the idea is that you can see his beds here are actually 100 feet long. If you have anything much shorter than that, then you're having to turn around, turn around, turn around, turn around every time you do it. So something like this is going to become more and more practical for growers on a larger scale with larger bed runs because you're not having to take the time to turn around. On a smaller system, it's going to take just as much time to do this to turn that machine around as it would be for someone to manually plant it. So, um, just turn it off now. We don't need to go to the next one. No. No, <laughs> you wish. No. no, it doesn't. Basically, it comes in a honeycomb-shaped flat. You basically expand this little compressed piece, and it expands out, and then you hook it in a tr in a, between two kind of suspension rods on each side. Then you fill it with your mix, and then you release it. And now that it has the mix in it, it holds the, the, the trays open. So... Downsides to this, you have to have very, very well-prepared seed beds, no trash. When we're talking about trash, we're talking about things like sticks, leaves, hay. Plant residue. Plant residue. It really takes a clean seed bed because this thing can get caught up on it. You want to bet... Sorry? Rocks. Um, you just want to make sure that they're below your cutting edge there. Okay, some people have really rocky soil. I have personally have quite rocky soil. But even on my soil, I saw Jean Martin's soil. He has rocks in there like this. I had a rock this year. You had a rock this year? One. Wow. <laughs> okay. Downsides to this. Um, you want to have really good germination with this. That's a good key. Uh, another downside to it is the material in which it's made from. And I have a few questions about it. I don't really know what type of paper it is, what type of glue there is. I know that the people that have this, um, they, um, they usually have like a fungicide in the paper so it doesn't break down so fast. What type of fungicide is that? But they've now got it in a supply that it doesn't have the fungicide. So it's just the paper and the glue that you would have to get over. And for Larry, that's a big question. And I have a question about it too. But in some ways, if you can improve that germination, even if you had to go down through a 100-foot bed and replace five or six plants as you went, you have to start. You have to weigh the cost between is this efficient with the scale that I'm using 
versus the time that it's going to save me. And also think about being down on the ground to plant all those things. How much is it wearing on your body? Um, there's a lot of questions that I still have with this particular system, but it intrigues me enough to think about uh, looking into it more. Sharing it with you. Using this system, would you put two seeds in per each one of those little blocks or three seeds? That's a really good question. It depends what you're planting. I would probably use the same planting density in my blocks that I use in this in those trays there. Um, you can always prune. So like we do chard. We, we put chard in a block. We don't do beets because it's just easier to direct seed a beet in my opinion. Um, not as secure in getting a beet as he is. But if you get fairly good germination out of beets, or you, say you get a lower germination than you like, you can, you can overseed a beet. They're pretty cheap seeds unless it's a golden beet seed. Um, you can always prune. We put chard in here. Well, we put chard in this one. And, you know, it's going to bring up three chard plants probably or something like that, two, three, four chard plants. And we go through and prune them out. So you can plant as many as you want and prune down. You know, seeds are relatively cheap, generally speaking. Two questions. How are you going to investigate the glue in the paper? How would one find that out? And then secondly, how do you get your plants out of these things without hurting them and making it time effective or breaking them apart? My, uh, the glue question would be just like I research everything I put in my mouth. I call the company and I talk to the scientists if I have to. I'm, don't satisfi I'm not satisfied with, we don't know. Well, somebody made it. You got the paper somewhere. Give me their number. And I will just keep calling until I either find out the answer or if they're not willing to say that I don't think it's a suitable company and I don't trust them and so I won't use the product. That would be my answer to that question. And then as far as this goes, we have sticks. They grow on trees. And we push them right in that little hole and it pops it out just a little bit and I take the plant and that's it. And so what we'll do, Alan, yep. hold this for me. Hold it for you again. Hold it for me again. So that's, I like this one a lot because you can see these have really large holes. And my fingers, while I'm a, kind of a, my wife says that you I'm nice scrawny, is, is still kind of big for some, a lot of those holes. But my finger will go like all the way into this one. And so I just pop them out with my finger. And so I'll, before I start a row, I just go through and literally pop them all. And then ideally, if I'm not by myself, if I'm by myself, then I, I, what I call, we have a plopper and a planter. Somebody plops and somebody plants, or else it's me and I'm a plopper and a planter. So I will plop them. But I don't, you don't want to leave, your, your, leave it on the ground too long out in the sun, especially on a sunny day. And so I kind of figure, I'm a, I've been doing it for 10 years and I'm really fast at it. So, I mean, I could do this whole flat and really few minutes you know I can plop it all out come back and put it in the ground and I will tell you did you see how that was sticking out of the ground in that picture it dries out we talked about hydrophobic and pea pots outside of the ground it didn't plant at all some of them were yeah, too deep so some of them were shallow I went to I went to Jean Martin's class and it really has to do that was the first time he like started using it and mm -hmm. they're just like hey let's video this thing yeah, yeah, yeah. you can calibrate the depth of the cutting blade that actually makes the hole and he's like yeah I just didn't put it that low for those passes because it was the first time he pulled the thing out sure, and they're just sure. like let's video it you know sure. type of thing and so even if you're doing it by hand you need to be conscious 
conscious that you're covering those because the sun will dry it out. Now, the other thing I was going to say. Thank you, Alan. You're welcome. Um, you probably can't see me. Pretend I'm kneeling down and this is the dirt, right? I would, two fingers, and I, if it's laying on the ground, I just grab it by the base of, its, of the plant, right, so that it's not ripping it apart. And I'm moderately careful. I'll kind of cup the, the root zone with two fingers and pick it up. I take these two fingers, put them in the ground. As I slide it over, I slide the plant in and cover it. I can do that and walk down the bed, you know. It is a little hard on your back, but it's a fairly quick process, especially for something like, like a brassica, like a, a broccoli. Lettuce is a little more complicated because you've got to be careful. You don't want to cover the crown up and all that and get all dirt inside of it. Then you have dirt when you take it to the market and people are like, your lettuce is dirty. It's hard to, you know, it's not pleasant. And so those are the things you got to think about when you're doing it. Do you pack around it or is it light loosely? I, I pack pretty well personally around the plant, and I'm not going to walk around it with my foot, but I'll, I'll definitely push it in well, make sure there's good soil to root contact. Yeah, you want soil to root contact. I mean, I can just tell you, and like I said, oh, a lot of and, things, go ahead. And I'll irrigate it right away with oh, either yes. drip tape or overhead, and that will settle out all the air pockets, yeah. even though you might not pack it down as well as other people might pack it down. If you irrigate right after, you can. It, it, there's a lot of forgiveness. I'll just say that. It's it's a very forgiving process, I think. Uh, what plants do you put two or three seeds, and do you have any plants, and do you just put one seed, or, you know, because what if like you have three beets that are all coming out? You don't mind that that they are so tight. You know, um, this last beet crop, we did the the two seeds, which means that you're probably putting about six beets in the same area. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it was our best beet crop ever. I mean, we were getting some excellent sized beets. Basically, what you do is that as you pull them out, the small ones have a chance to grow after the big ones. But usually, you'll have about three that are going to do exceptionally well. And so, just think about it this way. You either are going to plant the beets one, two, three within a six-inch area, or you can have three of those beets growing in that area and plant them every six inches. Does that make sense? So, for instance, you can plant them every two inches, one beet at a time, or you can plant them in a, a block, three together, okay, um, every six inches. It's the same square footage, it's just they're tighter in one space, but it's the same soil to plant ratio. What will help answer the question, I think, is that they will push each other around. And so they're not going to be like really bothering one another. You may get like a little flat side where they were touching. But basically, even if you direct seed those, which is what I do. You're going to have the same situation. You have the same situation. And so it, it, beets are just forgiving in this manner. You can do it, and it doesn't bother them. Oh, I personally do onions. Um, onions are notorious for taking a lot of time because they're doing one every two inches or whatever like that. So That's I'll nice. actually put them in a block, three onion seeds per block. And this fall, it worked pretty well for us. Yeah. So I was pretty onion. happy. They're, yeah. they're very heavy feeders. If you can't feed them... You need to give them their own space. So I put them, them. I don't just put three really close to every two inches. I'll put three every eight inches or every twelve inches, yeah. almost like what you would do lettuce at. So you space it wider. But the, here's the thing: is that uh, onions don't have a very good canopy. Okay, they don't have the leaves to overlap each other so that they they block out the weeds. And so you have to think about 
how I'm going to weed around these onions if I have so many rows. But if you put them together in a bunch and then leave space like a foot between these bunches of plants along the row, now you have a place where a regular hoe can fit between and you can weed in between these plants and keep them really clean. As far as lettuce, if you want to head lettuce, you need one plant. If you have two plants, it will look like a beautiful plant and you will cut it and you'll get two little ridiculous looking plants. What's our time looking like, Larry? Broccoli. What time were we supposed to if end? You, uh, 3.45. We need to think about closing up here, Larry, to well, let these people go out for Aren't Sabbath. you guys excited about our conversation? <laughs> That's fun. We're just having a good time. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we will answer whatever questions we can. But we probably need to end for the audio verse yeah, and for the yeah, video people so and we stuff should, like that. We should start to close. But pretty much everything else, like lettuce, broccoli, kale... Uh, chard, what else? Name some stuff. Romanesco. One a block. Uh, one one seed per cell. Yeah. Uh, one seed per cell. What's yeah. bok choy? Or it down to one. Bok, bok choy, choy one. one. Yeah. Uh, Chinese cabbage. One cabbage one. Salad mix. I always direct seed. Turnips. Uh-huh. I always direct seed. Arugula. Beets, I always do arugula, which would be the... part of my salad mix. Um, if I'm doing a braising mix, which would be a lot of things that you might not, like, you might, like, chard, for instance, in my braising mix, I direct seed that thick, heavy. Um, probably. What else? Here's uh, a good carrots, plug. Carrots get Elliot Coleman's seed. book, The New Organic Grower, and get Jean Martin's book, The Market Gardener. Gardener. Those are excellent books that have spacing, plant type, multiple seed blocks, what you need to do in one blocks, block sizes, all of that information so that you can take this home and you can read up on yourself and reference these books when you forget what we have said. And if you, if you want the best resource that I know of, I have it in my greenhouse, in my house, in my wash station, always, is Johnny C. Catalog. It's 100% free. And the amount of information is staggering. It's daunting. Yeah. What you get for free. Diseases, pests, when to plant, what to plant, uh, you know, spacing, everything, that all the, it's all for free right there. You just go to the plant, I'm going to plant broccoli, go to the broccoli section, it has a little block there that tells you everything you need to know. And it's pretty accurate, it's pretty much always accurate. So, before you leave, if you would like, we only have 30 of these, unfortunately, oh, and I don't think you we know, have enough. I, I went, we didn't ever talk about <laughs> Well, you started talking about other stuff, Larry. I mean, what can I say? I have a starts mix recipe that I did. Um, the, if you guys are welcome to it, there's a whole stack of them up here of, of how I make my starts mix. And I have a um, basic thing of how it, I do mine back here on the back side of this one. Um, and it, it goes through portion size. So like if you want to do, um, I have it down to a 2.25 gallons and what you would do, 40.5 gallons, what you would do, 40, 81 gallons. He's very technical. What the recipe would be and 162 gallons, what the recipe would be. And it's a very complicated process because I had a lot of trouble. I do veganic. And so to, to meet the nutritional needs of the plant, I had to do a lot of trial and error to come up with a recipe that actually grew good starts. And the starts that I grow now are fabulous, in my opinion. And so it is on my website, yes. If we don't have, a, if we don't have one for you, we'd be happy to email it to you. We'll just take... Um, you see, 
Eastwardgardens.com. Eastward, like the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. If you can remember that, and you should have it memorized, then you can remember the name of my farm. Dot com. Gardens, plural. There's only one garden there. I don't know why I pluralized it. But. We'll take more questions after we're done, but we need a, I think we need to close up All right. Situation. Do you want to close in prayer? Sure. Let's pray. Just bow your heads. Dear Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for this day that you've given us, for this time that um, we've been able to spend here talking about transplants. We just pray that we'd be able to apply this information in the way that would honor and glorify you. Please keep us. May we have a blessed time as we prepare for Sabbath this evening. In your name we ask. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.